You're listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Since Annabelle Coppin was a child, she wanted people to eat the beef her family raised on their Pilbara cattle station. But simply selling cattle to the market wasn't enough for her. She wanted to be involved in the entire process and watch as people picked up packets of her beef from the supermarket. She wanted them to know that what they were about to cook wasn't just any old Aussie beef, but that from Yarry Station, the property her family has been nurturing for five generations. In this episode, Annabelle shares the highs and lows of starting a branded beef business and how she keeps her dream alive. A few years ago, MLA contacted me and said that the chef was travelling around and making a show about different sort of places in the world with different cool bits of food and they wondered if he could come to Yarry and and do a little show about cooking outback beef on the place it was from and it was Curtis Stone, who at the time I've heard of but I didn't really know exactly who he was and we're generally people who always say, yeah, sure, come come on in. It can't be uh, can't be too hard to have a chef and cook some beef up on Yarry and so – you know, as stations are, I think I'd been into the West Pilbara at that time and we'd just taken on a new lease, Coongans, and we were buying cattle. So we were pretty busy doing that and getting them onto the place and getting some watering points going and it was hot. And So I hadn't really put much thought to it about Curtis Stone coming and they, they talked about he wanted to fly in. I thought it was a bit of an overkill, but if you want to fly from Broome, go for it and and then it was kind of just leading up into events of there was 10 people coming with him. I was thinking, why does he need 10 people to come and, you know, film some cooking? And, you know, just all sorts of bits and pieces to, to think, oh, maybe this guy's a bit, bit, bit bigger deal than we thought. And then the morning that he was arriving, they said, oh, could, would he be able to have a ride on a horse? And we said, yeah, sure. And Lydia was here at the time. I said, why don't we grab Cinco because he's nice and quiet and Cinco's a beautiful little horse but he's he's not very tall. He's probably 14 and a half hands or something. And Lydia said, I think he's really tall. And I said, oh, okay, how do you know that? And she said, just let me Google him and I'll see how tall he is. And I was like, how can you – this guy's a pretty big deal if you can Google him. And, you know, and within four seconds she had his height. I was like, whoa, Okay. So if his height's on the internet, maybe uh, Curtis Stone's a bit more of a bigger deal than I was thinking. <laughs> but, yeah, so he rocked up in his plane and 10 people. He was just a good straight out of the US but, you know, just a good Aussie genuine bloke that came and cooked up some beef and we had a really good afternoon. And so part of the reason or the main reason Curtis was coming to visit you is that not only do you – produce beef because you're a cattle station but you have your own brand of beef yeah yeah so we we established it officially in 2015 outback beef 
and we just have slowly grown it over time and we still are. But, yeah, so with the hope that it it will be a lot bigger in in times to come and be the heart of the whole business. So you're the fifth generation on Yarry Station and – I mean, the the station originally had sheep and then it went into cattle in the 70s. Every cattle station around Australia or cattle property, they produce beef, but usually it's in the form of a live beast and then the rest of it is kind of taken care of elsewhere in the supply chain. Not many people kind of follow it through the whole way and actually sell their beef in little packets to people to eat. Usually mm. you're selling a cow, not a not a steak. What made you want to go from just selling cattle to selling meat that people could prepare straight away in their homes. Yeah, so are a huge, huge factor, you know, lots of little reasons for that. Firstly, there's not many people that do it in the north, but branded beef products are growing quite rapidly, particularly in southern Australia. Compared to, say, 15 years ago, there's a lot of brands out there now. So it's definitely a trend that's increasing. Um. I mean, I I always I have to say I dreamed about this since I was pretty young as a as a child. I just we've always eaten our own beef, we've always butchered it, and I've just always been passionate about that side of cutting up the beef and making unique names for the cuts, and just really enjoying the difference of the beef that it is because it's really different. It's it's different type of beef than anywhere else. So, yeah, I always wanted to call it Rangeland Organic Beef. That was my childhood dream. I always thought I'd have a mobile abattoir and be able to just, you know, sell it all. So that's the simple answer. And then as time went by, I did a Nuffield scholarship, got to travel the world and also just did a lot of personal travel. And I think when you step out of the district that you live in or the the place that you know so well and you reflect about it, you start to realise how different you really are compared to the, the rest of the world. And, you know, the rangeland country across Australia as a whole is really different and it's just got such a great story. And there's not really anywhere else like it in the world. There's sim- similar places but really no one has the scale or the amount of natural country out there and, and the life that we live. So, so that's another reason I thought – Man, there is an opportunity here because we're so different and our product's different and it tastes different and it's got a great story. So the beef you produce is from Yari Station when, and that's where we are today, which is in the East Pilbara, Shire of East Pilbara, closest yep. township is Marble Bar. Can you describe Yari and the country for people that have never had the privilege of coming up here? Yeah, so it's a semi-arid region, so it's, you know, it's dry and, but it's beautiful and it's natural. It hasn't, although things have changed as a big picture, it hasn't really changed that much over time. It's really its natural state. Huge amount of biodiversity, rivers, beautiful springs, creeks, hills. And, you know, the cattle are are living in that and they're a product of that. So when you see a picture of the Pilbara, you know it's the Pilbara. Wherever it's just so different to anywhere else. You know it's not the Kimberleys. You know it's not somewhere in Africa. It's the Pilbara. It's so different. It's got the beautiful red hills, the spinifex, snappy gums on the edge, you know, beautiful kajibuts along the the edge of the rivers, um, soft rolling spinifex, 
and then all your herbage is in between, but it's old and it's distinct. And if for anyone that spends time in here, you can't help but love it. And it's just so, you know, the, t- the country can talk to you, really. You can feel it. You can feel that spirit amongst it. And, and the more time you spend in it, the, the more you love it. However, even if you visit it, you, you can't help but be blown away by how different it is and how beautiful it is. So many different species of flowers and plants and trees, but I suppose the biggest, the biggest take-home of the Pilbara is the beautiful hills and how they change colour during the day and she's nothing beats it when there's that soft light coming over the top of those hills. And Even if you had a bad day, that, that uh, fixes it pretty quick. And I've always... Well, a guy actually I heard speak one day when I was quite young as well, John Kilroy, spoke about the fact that beef is like um, is like wine with no label. So every bit of beef has a, a different story of, of where it's produced and it has a different flavour, but we're just not very good at telling that story. So I really jumped on that. I really liked that concept that we don't our beef's not better than anybody else's. But it's got a different story and a different flavour and it's how you tell that story. And and there's there's opportunity with that to to really to grow that slowly. I'd like to take some time now and learn a little bit more about your story because building a, a brand of beef doesn't happen overnight. And even though you've been here your entire life, this isn't something that you started twenty years ago. So yeah, what what have you been doing in the meantime, I guess, that's been building you up to starting this business? Yeah, so obviously born and grew up on Yarry and had a great childhood, learnt responsibility young and were able to go mustering early and have that kind of love of the place injected into you pretty early and also hard work and showing you that you can't have things overnight. And then shipped off to boarding school for five years and then I came home for a year just to work in the team and because that's what I've been wanting to do for the five years at boarding school. And then worked for a few months in the Territory and then came back down and helped run our southern farm for a couple of years. And, yeah, so based down there and then that's when I applied for a Nuffield and got that eventually and got to travel the world for that kind of rolled into quite a few quite a few years of travelling and a bit of work in the Middle East. So what is a Nuffield? So a Nuffield is an agricultural scholarship that um, it actually started in England and it's now in mainly Commonwealth countries where you are basically sponsored to travel the world and learn about agriculture and certain topics within ag that you choose and then bring it back and make agriculture in Australia a better place. That's that's the idea of it. So, yeah, all sponsored travel, massive scholarship, huge amount of learning, great people and just, you know, a lifetime opportunity. A lot of people said that to me when I got it and I was a little bit blasé, although, you know, it's a hard process to get into Nuffield and even the interviews are character building as, in, as itself. Until you do it and probably as I get older and reflect back of that that time and influence on my life was just amazing. Yeah. And what was the topic that you chose to go and study? So you first of all, 
you apply for a topic, but then you're thrown in with all the other people of your year and you do a six week whirlwind tour and just study all things ag. And that's not, you don't have anything to do that with that apart from doing it. And so, I mean, I think that was actually the highlight of the whole Nuffield doing that tour just across the world. 80 flights and every continent touched from, you know, the US through to China and, and then through Europe as well. Great mix of countries. And then my topic was the future and direction of the live trade. I was really, I'd done a cattle boat before I applied for a Nuffield and it just, it gave me a taste of what it was all about. I just wanted to learn so much more about it, particularly from political pressure saying that the live trade was going to end because mainly because people were getting richer and they didn't need fresh meat and they would be able to buy a fridge and so that all the, the trade was going to end. That was the main pressures back then. It wasn't so much on welfare. There was a bit of welfare, but particularly on, on the trade ending because of the change in economics. And this is what a lot of people were telling me. But, you know, until you set foot in those countries and touch and feel and ask the questions, you can't answer the question yourself. So I was very passionate about trying to answer that question for myself and that's why I studied that. So, yeah, so I studied that really for six months full-time, travelling, just asking that question, what's the future and direction of the live trade? Why does it exist why do you have live cattle? Why is there box meat? Why is there frozen meat? How does that all fit into the picture? Is there a future for it? What are the welfare outcomes for the cattle that go into these countries? All of that. And and then uh, wrote a report about it and, and then I ended up getting a, some contract work with Meat and Livestock Australia working in the supply chain across that country for uh, on and off for a couple of years, which was amazing. And then so after those few years abroad, you came home to, to run the camp? Yeah, so I'd been working in the Middle East, flying in and out, and also doing my chopper licence at the same time. So yeah, really good free time of my life. And then an opportunity came up to come home to manage the place until we kind of worked out what was happening with succession. So that came up. So of course, I jumped at it because I'd by then, although I was enjoying the free life and the experiences I was having, I was, you know, I always loved my home and I was very passionate about the beef industry and, and running a station. So, of course, I jumped at that chance and was able to manage uh, for five years for the family business before we went through succession and then I was able to buy a portion of of the business, which was Yari, and also continue leasing one of the farms in the south and basically take it over. Yeah, so that's what happened. So you're spending your 20s, so first of all travelling and then coming home, running the family property, flying and just getting to know, I guess putting some real runs on the board and, and miles on the ground of the, the time you're spending here and how you're getting to know the country and and the cattle and the way it all kind of works and, and the environment which would be so different to, I guess, your experience as a child. Yes. It was a very fortunate time to be able to transition from manager of a family business, which was economically reasonably stable, not a lot of debt, into then taking it over yourself and having the pressures of debt and change. And it was a really – it was a 
a good transition that way, yeah. And when you were a manager before you became the owner of this portion of the business, there are a number of things you started to, to implement at Yari that hadn't been done before and one of them was was actually a, a competition you developed with somebody I guess you'd met when you were working with in the Middle East, Boyd Holden. So yes, yeah. that's when I first came out to Yari in 2011 uh, was when you had Boyd doing a livestock handling school. So I guess talk to me about how doing livestock handling schools here came about. Yeah, um, so that was my role in the Middle East, not just my role but – my role in the Middle East was anything where Australian livestock was to follow and improve their welfare and efficiency. But a lot, of, uh, one of them was livestock handling courses, which Boyd Holden, Peter Dundon had already done a huge amount of work there doing great work in livestock handling courses. So we, we were kind of just coming behind in them and polishing it up, polishing up systems. So that's where I first met Boyd and he taught me a huge amount about the science of livestock handling and how to explain it to others. It's just so different to doing. And so, yeah, and he has developed into just a really great friend and also a mentor. And he comes back every year and does those courses. But, yeah, he started, he came from knowing him in the Middle East and then he came to Yari because I said, well, why don't you come over and we do the same thing with our team? Because every, although we always emphasise stockmanship, We'd, we'd never had kind of professional training about it. So that's when we implemented that in 2010. And through that time, Boyd and I developed our own bespoke wiener handling program. So we, we wanted to – we'd always done wiener handling here as kids and my mum did a lot of it. And But it wasn't – although it was done very well, it wasn't clear to everyone else how to do it. So we wanted to break it down into steps so that everybody understood how to do it and you didn't have to have so many skills to be able to to handle your wean as well. So we broke it into steps and then we used to, at the end of the course, kind of all sit around and have little competitions of who could quieten down their wieners the, the best and kind of judge each other, sit up on the hay at the end of the course and Boydie and I were sort of said, why don't we, how cool would this be if other stations did it with us and we could share this great feeling of quieting cattle down and handling cattle so well? Because lots of other people are doing it, but we're never sharing it. So that's how we came up with the idea of um, a livestock handling cup. Yeah, we kicked it off at Yarry. The first year was all fresh wieners that hadn't even been marked because that was how it was designed to be. And you get your, your 20 head and you do it your way and you're judged on how you handle, how you quieten those wieners down, train them and then put them through a course. Yeah, so that's that's how the cup started and it's it's growing and it's still existing and we really hope that it will continue to grow and may even go across the whole country yeah. and, and be, you know, just be just be a normal event that everybody enters into and just grow the stockmanship skills and grow your pride and how you handle your cattle. Aside from animal welfare and livestock handling, which is a really, I know, a really big passion of yours, you're also, I feel, as equally invested and passionate about the wildlife on Yarri. So not just the cattle, not just the animals that make you money, but every other animal on this place. Tell me about... 
that and the things you've done and the programs you've set up to try and look after them as well as you look after the cattle? Yeah, I think that just comes from the love of growing up in the country and and just being amongst it and being passionate about biodiversity and and your country. So we're always looking at ways to become more involved in, in that side because I think there's also an opportunity in, in the future for like a biodiversity offset for another little business for Yarry, like an ecosystem service payment. So as well as just being passionate about it, we're trying to build it into something as well that, you know, I think that's what you've got to do. You've got to love it first and grow it and, and go that way. So we've done, you know, we obviously did it and we've done our environmental plans and we signed up for Land for Wildlife. So that's being a part of monitoring what's on your country. And what else have we done? I mean, really just being aware of what's out there. We're always looking for bilbies and getting them on, on uh, camera and the northern possum we're trying to find. There's heaps of quolls, obviously, that we've always grown up with that. And then just knowing your birds and your lizards and your fish and your plants across the country is it's just a pleasure really as well. It feels like a very holistic kind of just happy place here. Like you've just got the wildlife, the the cattle, the cattle handling. There's such a big emphasis on handling the cattle, on looking after the country. Like it just feels like one kind of big happy, holistic <laughs> yeah, well, environment. Of course, that isn't always the case. It's bloody hard work and hot and dry and you know, people that are tired at times and all sorts of things. But if you if you paint it as a whole, that's why we're here because we love it so much and there is so much good about it. So over these years where you've been managing the property, uh, then buying in and owning the property, implementing these livestock handling processes and developing the Livestock Handling Cup, doing all your wildlife stuff or your stuff to look after the environment, it's kind of led you to finally being able to, to start the beef brand what made you actually bite the bullet in 2015 and and start it after it's been something you thought about for for many years uh because i was the director of the business and can make the decision is that when is that when you bought into the the business yeah so you know because it's risky doing that sort of stuff and in a family business you you can't do as much risky stuff so i was able to make the decision and we sent so when i was on the farm actually um helping run that i used to just take a few cattle down in our body truck down to the abattoir and get them cut up and then sell some just around to local farmers, you know, like take it in, put it in their freezer and walk away with all this cash thinking, wow, this is amazing, you know. (laughs) So I got a taste of it there, but it wasn't until I was able to run the business and make the decision as, okay, well, we're going to take the plunge here and have a crack at it. I mean, we didn't do it just like now it's not, it's a very small part of our business. We're just growing it up really carefully. So we did, we were doing like two head a month and putting it in the box. We sent it back up to the pub in, in the ironclad and we just got a feel for it really. It's feel for the yield that, you know, if you kill an animal, you're only going to get actually 30% of that back to sell. So it's just all these learnings of, and what do you do with the trim? Of course, that's the one of the hu- most hugest challenges about the branded beef product. And then we just slowly grew it from there. And then I had a guy 
or a couple called Tim and Kaz that came to work with us to look after a mining camp contract that we had. And he was actually a butcher. So, again, it's just grown organically because of his skills as well. So I said, oh, can you start kind of helping me grow the branded beef business side because you're a butcher as well and he was an ex-butcher. And so he's still with us today, Tim and Kaz, and there. And now we're doing up to 40 head a month, usually around 30. But So it's definitely grown if you look at it back in that time. However, it's still small and we want to do it right so that in 20 years' time it's humming and it's we've got all the systems worked out and we've found really solid markets. So if, if I can just – I think the easiest way is just to read you my vision of where I want to head with the whole business. And that is to be, and if any of my team are listening to this, they'll start rolling their eyes because they hear this every month. (laughs) So we want to be a stable, vertically integrated beef business. That includes a biodiversity credit scheme. We hope to be in the top 10% of Australia's herd performance in a strong financial position to take up new opportunities. We want to successfully promote our natural beef product. So that's really about the brand. We want to improve our landscape function, so that's really about the country. We want to prove high livestock welfare standards, so that's actually having a program to prove what we do. And we want to carry a really powerful social license for our, for our country and our business. And we want to encourage our team to be a part of that success and, and enjoy it. And whatever we do, we want to leave it better. So that's a little bit of a saying that we use. We just want to leave things better. Whether it's the car at the end of the day or shoeing the horse right up to how we leave the country in 20 years' time, we just want to leave it better. So the brand is designed to pull all that together because the brand tells a story. And I don't think – so in terms of the social licence, it tells a story – I don't think we're going to be able to run a business without a strong social license. And, you know, anyone that was affected by the live trade knows exactly what I'm talking about there. It's just so important. And I don't think there's a better way than someone eating your beef product and then telling the story. Because we have a great story to tell. It's full of integrity. There's no bullshit about it. It's real. And I think that most Australians enjoy that kind of story as long as we're telling the truth and we always will we're really passionate about our country and we we feel that through a beef brand we might be able to link biodiversity credits through that so again another reason to have a brand to to build it up we have a natural beef product like it's it's different it tastes different it's got a really as curtis stone said a natural mineral flavor it it tastes different to other beef because of what it's eaten where it's been and most people that eat it say wow that tastes like beef when I was a kid and that's really cool Um, and it comes from a natural beautiful environment with a great story there's people that are supported by that beef that really are passionate about their career so that's the people in our team and we're developing them up and, and then we have our family story as well so if you mix, you know, the people, the cattle, the country all into that brand, we hope that it's it's built to the to the be the soul of the business. It's full of integrity. 
that's solid, that has very strong vertically integrated markets that are solid, that at the beginning of the year we know how much we're going to get for our product and that we know in five years' time that we're still going to be selling it there. So we're not jumping around everywhere wondering where we're going to sell our cattle. So we have a nice strong plan of, of that. For, that's, why, that's why I like the vertically integrated model. Of course, it's not as simple as that and that's why I've put a lot of time on this to work because as a very uh, smart man told me, what you think you're going to do in one year will take you five and what you think you're going to do in five you'll take you 20. And I found that very hard to accept when I first started running Yari. But now I've learnt the hard way that that's actually 20 years just comes around pretty fast. It's only 20 more musters. It's only 20 more rain seasons. 20 more times to get it right. 20 more seasons to work out where we're going to sell that beef, where we're going to build the brand, who really suits our product. So Tim's job and our, our little Outback Beef job is is to find markets that want to tell our story. So we don't want to just flog carcasses because we could do that all day long. So we're very we're trying to be really careful about where we we sell our beef and we want people to take it that want to tell the story with it so we we aim to wherever that beef goes the story goes with it and obviously it's still got to be of high quality it's all MSA graded tastes good but it's there's something different about it and it has a story with it and hopefully that gives them a bit of a feel good as well you know, long term, it's always just been my aim to have 25% of our cattle sales go through Outback Beef. I think if we get it right, though, we should be able to do more than that. Yeah. I guess it's all well and good to have this dream and this vision of starting a, a branded beef line and and building it up, but, you know, the vision and reality are two different things. So yeah, let's correct. talk about yeah. some of the realities of, of starting this business because I'm guessing it's not as easy as, you know, picking a cute name and a logo and getting some pictures yeah. and a website and, and all that. Like there's got to be a lot of hard slog, I imagine, that went into the back end of it and a lot of, especially okay. anything to do with food and food safety, mm-hmm. selling selling food to the general public. Yeah, it certainly is. You've got to be very passionate about this because – and I, I'm reasonably comfortable with the challenges because I know that we're just building it slowly and we it's where we want to be. So, and we've just got to do it right as we go and learn from it. And it's its own little company. It has to buy the cattle off the station. So it has to make its way, but it doesn't, we're not aiming to make millions of dollars out of this. It's a slow burn and it's for all the reasons I just talked about, to be the heart of the country here and the heart of the people and, and it's going to be like the hub. So because of the when you face those challenges and you were like why am i doing this today you just think back of where we're heading and as long as we're just breaking even and making our mark slowly and learning from it well, we're actually doing okay um so yeah there's all sorts of challenges of course anywhere from lack of labor in abattoirs oh. to abattoirs not wanting to do custom kills for small numbers of cattle jumping having to be at the mercy of them because you have to be because you, you don't have your own control there, obviously. Uh, you know, the boning rooms, finding the yields. It, it's actually 
it's reasonably similar to running a cattle station. You can relate a lot to it, but it's just a little bit more detailed, yeah. So a lot of the things that you do, you can relate it to drafting up cattle in the yards, you know, okay, well, the boxes are here, the system's here, the boning rooms. We're not running the boning room. I'm just saying to understand that process. We obviously, it's a custom kill into the abattoir. We then have a boning room and you have to come up with your own cut sheets and plan of how you want them to bone that beef out. And then you've got to track all that meat to make sure that it hasn't disappeared somewhere. And there's no system for that. So we're kind of trying to develop spreadsheets and where you weigh in, where you weigh out, where on earth happened to that, where did that box of cube roll go, you know, all that sort of stuff. Getting boxes made, labels, freezer rooms breaking down, moving boxes of meat from one stop to the next. Uh, It's very similar to livestock meat. You know, you've got to handle it with care and there's time pressures. You can't just put it in a room and leave it for a week. It's extreme sort of pressure to get things happening and get a system happening. Freight, thing, freight tracks breaking down, meat going missing, not turning up to where you said it was going to turn up. Supplies unhappy because things didn't turn up. Um, wondering what you're going to do with all the trim. Making sure that you've worked out the yield on the beast and you're actually going to make a margin because the costs of breaking that beast down is huge. And, you know, just all the little day-to-day logistics of it that the Outback team deals with. On top of running a cattle station. Yeah, so we have a little – we work in circles here at Yarry. So we have – we don't – I don't like flatline management systems. It doesn't suit my style. So we have circles and leaders of those circles. So we have an Outback Beef circle and that team – so I have a good friend in Perth who helps logistics in Perth part-time and we have Tim and Kaz running the operations of the business and then we have people within the Yarry team that jump into that circle and help. So some of the team are really good at making videos and content creation. Others have been really good at customer service, delivering beef boxes, say, through Pilbara Towns, doing little pop-up shops. So – and. That actually can be a good thing for people because they get to see your product from the start to the finish and you get to interact with people and it's something different as well. And, you know, even though all of that is hard and you do wonder sometimes why on earth have you created this complicated system, when you see someone take a box of meat and you just, especially when it's all cryovacked and fresh and you're just like, man, they're so worth it. With a beautiful label. The beef is really good. It's good beef. And people love it. bit more of a challenge with butchers. Some butchers, because we're different. So another reason we started the brand is because the stereotype of northern meat is, you know, it's, it's dry and it's horrible and tough and all of this rubbish. So, you know, I kind of wanted to prove a point there that it's not the case. So everything's MSA graded, which is great. But the carcasses are different to a southwest young beast that's been on grass all its life or all finished on grain. It, they are, it, there's a different type of meat, just like we talked about with the, the whole wine theory. So it's different. And most butchers are not used to those sort of carcasses. And when So most butchers, it doesn't suit them. They, they don't like the look of it. They're worried about it. If they actually try the meat, they then change their mind. But we've even had people say, look, it's too beefy. 
Oh, it's nice and tender and juicy, but it's just too, the flavour is too strong. It's too beefy. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's a new one. Yeah, so we're we're like we're not chicken producers. We actually we want to produce something with flavour. I feel that the beef industry has gone so so about yield and tenderness that we've forgotten about the flavour. Um, but yeah, so it's what people are used to as well, and and why our model does suit to be retail ready or direct to consumer because once you cut it up and put it in a packet, it looks amazing. And, you know, it's got a beautiful label, the Sturt P and the Muller Muller and the Spinifex. And, and, you know, the opportunities are endless as long as we can just keep rolling with the logistics and the operations as well. So you don't just have the regular challenges of starting a new business and also being quite geographically isolated while running this business and growing it. You also have this whole perception issue to, to overcome as well with, with, you said, some people in the supply chain and butchers, some of your end users having this perception that the beef isn't as good or because the carcass looks different. So that's yes. a whole extra thing for you to overcome. Yeah, correct. Yeah, it's a part of the challenge. As soon as you say we're a rangeland property in the north, or ah, no, it won't be any good. Like, well, hang on, here's my, well, my MSA index numbers. Like, they're pretty good, some of you know, some of them top, top whatever beast would would do. Yeah. So here's here's the MSA my numbers. It's actually good beef. Try it, and you, it it might be you know different to what you what you think it is. But you, some, so that's why we have to just be really not not too. We're not trying to sell it everywhere. We're not trying to flog carcasses. We're trying to sell the story, and we're trying to target people that really care about where they're beef's coming from and like something different so and and hopefully a whole service comes with our beef that's the other thing we're building so good customer service products that come with it as for marketing and i think just a genuine story helps yeah it's funny as you say all that i'm thinking you could switch out a few words and that's kind of the ethos behind my photography business as well Uh like i don't want it i'm not seeking to be every like a, a, everyone to be my clients like you said it's kind of like a quality over quantity thing yeah and having that niche yeah and that that circle where whoever's you're serving or servicing is is appreciating what you do and vice versa and it's kind of a, a symbiotic yeah. relationship there rather than just trying to like you said flog as flog much beaten. meat as we can yeah because yeah. it's you know it's hard to sell meat as, as much as the as much as the world says that we're running out of protein and there's going to be a shortage, it, it's it's still hard to sell meat. There's plenty of it out there, and price does win in the end. And there's a lot of trim, and you got to be competitive as well. So it's not as simple as whacking a nice label on there and a nice story and thinking everyone's going to buy your beef because most people are like first. First question is, uh, well, how much does it cost and how much of it can I get? And I'm like, well, hang on, just take it two steps back here, you know. We can't just supply T-bones all day long or strip loins. We've got all sorts of things we've got to sell. So if you want to come on board with us, you really got to help us move that carcass and at least buy some trim and some steak and, and all of this. We're not like a traditional wholesaler that just has endless cuts of meat of whatever you want. So that's our other difference. And challenge. 
and reasons why we need to do this slowly and and find those channels that appreciate the meat and actually also pay you and are able to kind of balance up their their supply so that they can not just sell one product. So, yeah, that's why it's a 20-year plan. <laughs> I guess so it sounds like that's another challenge there in adding in um, education and awareness around retailer and consumer understanding of different beef cuts and trying to drive demand for those those less desirable cuts or those non-premium cuts that kind of – and all it is is branding, really. Like, yeah, and uh, perception and people knowing about it and not calling it not calling it a secondary cut, cut. calling it, you know, mum's best friend or your, your family meal or, you know, your, your luxury meal. So talk to me about some of the names that you've come up with for your products because they're very authentic for the Pilbara. Yeah, well, this is a fun part of the deal and that's coming up with names. So we have things like the Sturt Pea Porterhouse, Red Dirt Rump, Snappy Gum Snitzel. Don't forget the Mulla Mulla Mints. Yeah, Mulla Mulla Mints. Yep, we've got the Calawar Roast. We've got the Bohemia Blade. Uh, The Stock Camp. Stock Camp Ribs. Stock Camp Brisket. Outback Brisket. The Grey River Ribeye. Um, Yeah, and I think – and then we try and have a little story about what that means. So what's a Snappy Gum or Sturt Pea or Mulla Mulla or – the red dirt, how's that changed the flavour? Um, yeah, a bit of a point of difference and, and a bit of fun as well. And so what's it like when you're able to get out there and be face-to-face with people selling that product and getting feedback from them as well, I guess? That must be pretty special. Yeah, and I don't really do it that much compared to the rest of the team. But, yeah, that is, it's really achieving when people, especially for the because the people that are buying it are generally love it. And they are investing in the story. Or or if they haven't bought it before and when they're coming back again, they're like, that beef was like it used to be when I was a kid or it's beautiful beef. It tastes like beef. The sausages are not full of fillers. It's just beef. Um, and trying to keep it as simple as possible, get some recipes in there for cuts that some people have never heard of. Um, and kind of trying to – because we eat a lot of beef on stations and we know all the cuts, obviously, we have to utilise the whole carcass. So we actually have a lot of knowledge about how to eat beef as well, so kind of relaying that through our website and recipe cards as well of just utilising that whole carcass mentality. So if you are putting through, say, on average 30 head a month, so three twelves, 36, so 360 cows a year, the beef that you get off them you know are being consumed by people, even before the beef business, cows you sold, they either went live export or into the domestic market. People were eating your beef regardless. So I guess the mm. difference is now is that they know it's your beef. So what is the the big difference, I guess, for you about that? Because I guess it's not just about having people eat your beef because they were already eating your beef. They just didn't know they were, I suppose. Yeah, it's just mixed in like a commodity. Mm. So, of course, some of the buyers that buy our beef, they know it's good and they, you know, they, they have their own little markets. And, and that's just Pilbara beef as a whole or Kimberley beef. And, um, but it's very different when you, you've put your label on it and you've, you've stamped it with integrity. And 
you know where it's gone and and you can everything you say about it is true um i think that's a really good model it's hard and you know i heard a really good beef processor say say this not long ago and it's so true people say that they'll pay more for a product with a story or pay more if they know that people look after the cattle or if they're carbon neutral. They say it, but they don't necessarily do it yet. They, they, they're, they're filled with good intentions, but when they get suckered into the supermarket and then they're busy and there's a special for a T-bone, they're going to go that way. Big, um, big sign that says special with the colours, you know, everything down to the colours, the font, the size of the text is there to draw you in to buy that certain thing. Yeah, so, so saying and doing is different still in the beef game. I don't know if that will be always – there will always be an element of that, that price will always win, convenience will always win, supermarkets are always going to be there. They're always going to suck up most of the people. But I think – I do think with time that this will grow and, and it will become um, – I think it, it, I think there's potential and that's why we're putting the effort into it, to, to have a stable market in 20 years' time, to have a good hub – and to be able to tell our story and have a social license for Yari and hopefully a biodiversity offset feeding into that as well. Um, we're going to have to be carbon neutral. We all know that, love it or hate it. Um, so it's a good model for all that, if you ask me. It's a, it's a lot of extra work. It's definitely not for everybody and neither should it be because it's a lot of work and, and, and not necessarily a massive, massive economic difference to your business which I've always known. Um, however, if I can have a stable market and a, and a long-term market and some stability that will be trusted in the, in the whole schemes of Australia, well, I think it's worth um, sinking our teeth into it. <laughs> so what's next for Outback Beef in the next – I know you said you've got a 20-year plan, but I yeah. guess what comes up in the immediate future? Yeah, so just small increments of uh, growth – we don't we don't need it to grow too much more in numbers yet, but it's it's sort of smoothing out the process, is smoothing out where we're getting our cattle boned out, getting that system nice and smooth, knowing getting a better hub for our beef where we can pack and not be in a rush and not be under people's feet, um, smoothing out the logistics, um, and just just working on good stable markets that will. And probably going a little bit more wholesale, so having not having to sell the one carcass to one person, kind of thing, or um, having a bit more of a hub so that we can be able to sell a little bit more wholesale, retail ready, a bit more supermarket stuff. And we still do want to focus on families in the Pilbara. It's a hard one because um, they get sucked into the supermarkets, but. We really want to. We really feel that Pilbara people should have a local product. They don't. They don't get that. They live in cattle country, but they don't have a. Apart from us, they don't have a local beef brand. So we want to. We want that available to Pilbara families. In a in a good family box that they can buy and we can deliver. So we will continue to to work on that as well. Looking back on this journey so far, what would you say is the major takeaway lesson? Uh, grow it slow, be very passionate about your product and make sure that w- what you what you put into that product is, is good, good meat. 